Hey folks, turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're in the middle of uh, a six-part series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And we are going to be discussing part four of this uh, series. If you haven't joined us, don't worry. Uh, You're going to be able to track in right along. You're going to be able to jump into the book and get right into it. Uh, I'm going to go straight to the title here. The title of today's message is, the series is Vanity Under the Sun. And part four in our series in Ecclesiastes is simply entitled, Injustice. Injustice. And so folks, turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're going to begin in chapter 9. And uh, I believe the ushers are passing out uh, some of the some of the bulletins there, or some of the uh, handouts there for you to follow along. Today I'm going to have you fill in some blanks. Uh, sometimes we, we fill in the blanks. Sometimes we uh, do some different things. But today is going to be one of those fill in the blank days. And uh, we are going to pray for the uh, great injustice of that DVD player there. We're going to make sure that that DVD works. So let me open us up in a word of prayer, and let's talk about injustice. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, You are a God who desires justice and who will one day bring justice to this entire earth. And yet, Father, in the midst of all the chaos of life, in the midst of the ups and downs, we look upon this world and we see travesty and we see injustice and we see oppression. And our hearts, Father, they cry out. We've all been victims. We've all been victimized in the workplace. We've all been victims of injustice at home. We've been victims of injustice in many different facets of life. Some have oppressed us. We've experienced great travesty. Sometimes to no fault of our own. And so, Lord, we cry out, we say, why is there injustice? Why is there oppression? Why is it happening to me, to us? But, Father, we maintain hope. We maintain hope that You are going to make all things right on the last day. And so, Father, as we look at Your Word today and what Solomon has to say about this topic of injustice, we pray that You would speak to us. We pray that You would encourage our hearts. You would remind us that the that the the injustices of this day will be made right on the last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Vanity Under the Sun, Part 4 on Injustice. What I would like to do in this study is I'd like to take us through four, you might say, summary statements that Solomon makes in the book of Ecclesiastes about injustice. Now up until this point in our series, we've simply been going through Ecclesiastes verse by verse. We started in chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, everything's vanity. We went on to chapter 2, and then last week we were in uh, the early part of chapter 3. But from here on out, we're going to take a little bit more of a topical approach to the book of Ecclesiastes, because really that's what Solomon does. Solomon changes from a very sequential approach in the book, talking sequentially about topics, and later on, beginning in basically chapter 4 onward, Solomon speaks as as it were like he does in the Proverbs. Sometimes each verse is different from one another. 
Sometimes each uh, section, there's only a few verses and then it moves on to a brand new topic. And so it's appropriate as we move now past chapter 3 to take Ecclesiastes in bits and pieces. And today we're going to look at about four, five, six passages on the issue of injustice that are scattered throughout the book. And so on your outlines, I want to make a first summary statement about Solomon's perspective on injustice and oppression. We're talking initially here about Solomon's perspective on injustice and oppression. And the first statement is this in your outline. Friends, earthly rewards are not guaranteed to the talented, the studious, or the diligent ones. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 9. We're making the point here that that earthly rewards are not guaranteed to the talented, studious, or diligent ones. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Solomon says this. He says, I returned, and I saw under the sun, in this life, on earth, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. You know, when I was growing up, all I wanted to do in life, all I wanted to do in life was to be a baseball player. That's all I thought about from age four to my high school days. Every day I thought about becoming a major league baseball player. And I, I trained and I trained and I trained. I played Little League. I played Senior Leagues, Pony Leagues, Bay of Ruth, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I did it all. I can't tell you how many ground balls my dad would hit me during the week. I mean, we just, boom, he'd, he'd hit me a ground ball, I'd feel that, I'd throw it back. I think I, I think I fielded a million ground balls in my life, I really do. Uh, fly balls, he'd hit me fly balls, and I'd, I'd run and I'd catch them, and I'd slide and I'd catch them. I was training and training and training my whole childhood to be a major league baseball player. That's all I did. And then, at, the, at about the age of 16, I started looking at all that training. I started looking at my skill and my talent that I had developed in the game. And at 16 years of age, I realized I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. All that work, all that training... All that time and effort from age four until my high school days. And there, there came a moment in my life where I looked upon my baseball career and I realized I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. How about you? Maybe you, uh, maybe you went to school. You got a, a degree in a field of study that you were absolutely sure you were going to become an expert in. This was going to be your field. But now, years later, you're working in a job that has nothing to do with your degree, that has nothing to do with that hope and that dream. 
Maybe you're a person who's climbed the ladder of life by working hard, by dedication, by, by perseverance. And you work diligently trying to impress the boss, and yet despite all that hard work, perhaps you are still so far off from that promotion or that pay raise that you were hoping for. Friends, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, he says in this life, in life under the sun, there are no guarantees that your talent, your commitment to education, the perseverance you put toward your job, there is no guarantees that these things will satisfy your hopes and dreams. No guarantees. Why? Because life is filled with injustice. Life is filled with injustice. Solomon says that evil and injustice can suddenly overtake us like a fish caught in a net or a bird caught in a snare. It can happen quickly. Unannounced. Just when we think we're going to get ahead in life, Something comes along and pushes us down. Life is unjust. Life is not fair. The race is not always to the swift. The battle is not always won by the strong. Bread not always given to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. Ah, but time and chance. Time and chance happen to all of us. Life is unjust. Life is not fair. This is an initial statement of Solomon's perspective on injustice and oppression. That our talent, that our studies, that our commitment don't always get us that final reward. What about a second issue? What about a second statement? A second statement by Solomon would be this. Credit. Credit is not always given to whom it is due. Take a look at actually the very next verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Verse 13 on to 18. We're looking at the fact that credit is not always given to whom credit is due. Chapter 9 verse 13 to 18 says this. This wisdom... I have also, uh, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in the city a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, and no one remembered, yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength, nevertheless... The poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In our melting pot group, uh, we have a Bible study, a, a, a kind of every other week Bible study. And uh, last year we were going through the book of Hosea, and we were coming across the topic of injustice. And I had asked the group, you know, can you give me examples of injustice in your life? And one individual um, spoke up and said, you know, in the workplace, in, in my workplace, I have a boss over me who always takes credit for my idea, who always takes credit for my work, who always takes credit not just for my work, but for everyone else's work under him. He takes the ideas and, and the hard work and the effort, 
and the accomplishments of those under him, and he takes them and he shows them to the one who is above him. He says, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. A boss taking credit for an employee's ideas or his work. Likewise, Solomon says, hey, here's a simple peasant. Here's a simple farmer who in his wisdom finds a way to bring deliverance to his city. Somehow, someway, he creates a plan to overthrow his city's captors. And he and the townspeople, they execute the plan to perfection. They are liberated by the wisdom of this poor, wise man. And yet no sooner does his wisdom liberate the city that the ruler, or excuse me, that the people soon forget about the wise man's plans. Yet no sooner does the man liberate the city with his great idea that the city instead, the townspeople instead, ignore the man who liberated them and instead turn to the shouts of fools. They turn to the, to the cries, the, the loud voices of other leaders who rise up and perhaps take credit for the liberation of the city. Solomon says, what a travesty. What a travesty. Injustice. It's not fair. And yet this is a reality of life. Solomon's words here can be applied in so many ways. In our lives, we can think of examples in which someone else has taken credit or our good idea or our good work was ignored by those in our family or in our workplace. Well, these have been examples of injustice, yes, but kind of trivial examples. You know, when we think of injustice, we usually think of uh, something more, more significant. When we think of oppression, we think of something a little bit more severe. Well, Solomon addresses that as well. Take a look uh, at our third statement, our third summary statement. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 8, but before we do, write this down. Oppressors, Solomon's going to say, oppressors often go unpunished in this life, while righteous people often experience tremendous loss and pain. Oppressors often go unpunished in this life, while righteous people often experience tremendous loss and pain. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. We're going to take some selections from this, actually. Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 14 says this, Then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And they boasted in, this, in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged. He goes on to say in verse 14, uh, There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, meaningless, purposeless, pointless. We have some uh, 
we have some peculiar uh, statements here that we actually need to go through as a group. And I'm, I'm not sure that's going to show up. Uh, is, you think it's going to show up, Joyce? We're going to try. Here we go. Let's look at this next, next slide here. All right. You see that right there? That's, uh, that's Hebrew right there. That is some Hebrew characters we're looking at, folks. And uh, what we see here is a he- two different Hebrew words. Can you distinguish between the two, by the way? Can you look at the characters and distinguish between the two? The word on the left is shakak, and it means to forget. The word on the right is shavak, and it means to praise or to boast. And here's the issue. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10, that word there at the very top where I've got a little asterisk by it, the word boasted there, different Bible translations translate it differently based on how they understood the writing of that word. So what I'm saying is, those, Solomon, as he penned the words of Ecclesiastes, he either wrote shakak or shavak in the text, and those who then translated it went in two different directions. Some thought it was one way, some thought it was the other, because they couldn't tell the difference between that middle letter, that middle character, which, as you can tell, is very, very similar to one another. Well, obviously, it significantly changes the meaning of the text, and I'm here to suggest this morning that the word boasted is much more in the context of Ecclesiastes 8 than the word forget. Let, let's, let's determine why. Why is it the, the case that the word boasted is a better fit than the word forget? Well, the point of the entire context of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is to say that the wicked often get away. They often get away with their wickedness. Sometimes it seems that the wicked go unpunished. Notice what he says in verse 11. The sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and yet his days are prolonged. And so folks, in light of that context, it seems... It seems awkward for us to put the word forget up there, uh, per the New King James. Instead, the word boasted is much more in keeping with the flow of Solomon's argument. The wicked, what's going on in verse 10? The wicked are being buried, but prior to their death, prior to their burial, during their life, Solomon says, they had come and gone out of the temple, come and gone out of the most holy place of God, And yet, they were boasting, boasting in their wickedness, boasting in their injustice, boasting that, hey, I can come and go as I please in and out of the temple, and hey, it doesn't look like there's any, uh, doesn't even look like God's watching, doesn't even look like He's paying attention to my life. I can go in, I can do my sacrifices and head right back out and go back out to the life that I've always wanted to live. That's the point of Ecclesiastes 8, verse 10. They were boasting that, hey, where is God? I don't see Him. I'm going to pay my respects and go back out of the temple and do whatever I want. One study Bible writes this comment about these verses. In the Net Bible, it says this, The wicked boast that they can come and go as they please in the temple, flaunting their irreligion without fearing divine retribution. 
This thought is continued in verse 11. A failure to execute a sentence against a criminal emboldens the wicked to commit more crimes, confident they will not suffer retribution. Nobody laughed at that picture. It's time to laugh. I meant for that to be kind of funny. That guy, look at him, he's Joe Cool, right? Hey, nobody can harm me. Nobody can bother me. I'm the king, right? I can do whatever I want. I can go in the temple and come back out and do whatever I want. I can come to church and walk back out and do whatever I want. I'll pay my dues for a little bit, but hey, God's obviously not watching. So why bother, why bother living the holy life? Why bother living the good life? Because it sure seems to me that uh, every time I do wrong, nothing bad happens. Oppressors, those who commit evil, those who commit injustices, they often go unpunished. They do. In this life. In this life. They often go unpunished, while righteous people often experience tremendous pain and tremendous loss. Remember at the end, in verse 14, it said, I I see the wicked, and they're getting the lot of the righteous. They're getting the blessings that a righteous person should get. I see the righteous, and they're getting the lot of the wicked. They are sometimes dying young. They're the ones getting sick at times. They're the ones having trouble in their jobs, having trouble with their finances, having trouble in their marriages, and yet they're the ones trying to stay on the straight and narrow, trying to follow God, trying to honor Him. Why is that? It's because injustice is a common denominator in this life. That's what Solomon is saying. He's saying injustice, oppression, these are common denominators. You will experience them in this life. And so, fourth and finally, a final summary statement on this topic of injustice for Solomon. He says, look, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised to see injustice in this world. It is a reality of life under the sun. Don't be surprised to see injustice in this world. It is a reality of life under the sun. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, 8 and 9. It says this, If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province. Do not marvel at the matter. Don't be surprised. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Now, I get the first part. Okay, don't be surprised if you see oppression and violent perversion of justice, etc. But what about that latter part about the high officials and the kings? What's going on there? Well, see, there's a key word that I've highlighted. The word watches over. It's uh, shamar in, in Hebrew. And the word shamar in Hebrew means this. It means to keep, to guard, or to protect. To keep, to guard, or to protect. Interestingly, and this is, this is important about this verse. Interestingly, that verb, to keep watch over, to watch over, shamar, it can have both a positive sense, in the sense of, positively protecting someone or positively guarding someone or it can have a negative sense in the sense of to protect my own interests. So take a look at two different Bible translations here. They take them in different ways. The Amplified Bible, for instance, takes this word in a positive sense and it translates it like this. Do not marvel at the matter. 
be sure that there are those who will attend to it. For a higher official than the high is observing, and higher ones are over them. And so the Amplified Bible and others like it, they take this word shamar and they take it in a positive sense, saying, yeah, don't be surprised at injustice, but take heart. Because government officials are watching over these injustices, and those governing officials and the kings, they will make sure injustice is handled. Sure. (laughs) Do you buy that? (laughs) I mean, really, if we're talking about life under the sun, do do you really find that to be true in life, in your experience? Sometimes, you know. Occasionally, Glenn says not so much. Okay, what about a negative sense of the verb verb shamar? Take a look at this. In a negative sense. Don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all the king and the king is served by the field. Holman Christian Standard Bible. Very good translation, by the way. Not well known, but a good translation of the Bible. This, friends, I suggest is the meaning of Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. It is that high officials are protecting one another. They're protecting their interests. And because of that, injustice is rampant. Oppression is rampant. Perversion of justice all over the place. And they're watching over it. They're not watching over you. They're watching over themselves. They're watching over their interests so that they can get what is theirs. This, I would argue, is in keeping with the sense of the, of the passage here in Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. And it's not surprising, it's not surprising that just a couple verses later, Solomon makes this statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 11. He says this, When goods increase... They increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? You see, in the flow of the, of, of the context here in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon saying, hey, look, even when, you, even when you produce the crops, even when you do the good work, even when you, 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 you diligently do well in your job, somebody else, boy, they're going to consume it. They're going to take advantage of it. Might be a high official, might be a king, might be your boss. The fruit of our labor is often exploited by those who have not worked for it. This is a reality of life. Oppressive persons, institutions, and governments will consume the fruits of our labor. It may be unjust, but it is a reality. And we must come to grips with this reality. It's what Solomon's suggesting here throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's saying, hey, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Expect it to happen. Okay, so in review, we've made four statements here. We're not done, but we've made four initial statements about what's going on with injustice. First, we've said that earthly rewards are not guaranteed to the talented, studious, or diligent ones. Second, we said that credit is not always given to whom credit is due. Third, oppressors often go unpunished in this life, while righteous people often experience tremendous loss and pain. And fourth, don't be surprised then to see injustice in this world. It is a reality of life under the sun. Now these are Solomon's thoughts on injustice. 
This was a topic of great interest to Solomon, as a matter of fact. He spoke of it quite extensively, both in the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. In fact, there's one other passage I want to look at right now. And it's a passage that shows Solomon's emotional reaction to injustice. What happens when injustice occurs? This is Solomon's reaction. Take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Solomon says this, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet, better than both, both the living and the dead, is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. How does it feel to be a victim of oppression and injustice? Solomon says there are tears, there is pain, there is loneliness. And these are just a few of those emotions. We could speak also of frustration, of bitterness, of anger. I think these also characterize some who have been oppressed, some who have had injustices happen upon them. Solomon says he, he finds injustices like these to be so painful and so distressing that death seemed like a better option than to go through a constant life of oppression. Or better still, Solomon says, hey, how about never having existed than to experience the pain and the sorrow of injustice? These are, these are bold statements. These are significant statements. These are, these are intense statements. And we read them and we go, this is the Word of God? Really? Is this, are we to read this and think this is God's perspective? As we've been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes, there are many, many, many moments in which Solomon speaks not looking up at the heavens, but looking only at this earth. There are many, many moments when Solomon willingly puts on his blinders and he just looks at this life. He doesn't consider God. For a moment, he doesn't consider life beyond the grave. He just looks, as it were, through the lens of humanism, through the lens of naturalism, through the lens of existentialism. And when he does... This is his conclusion in verse 2. In verse 3. When he puts on the lens of humanism for a time, which he does often in the book of Ecclesiastes, when he puts on the lens of naturalism, that is the only alternative. Verses 2 and 3. Frederick Nietzsche, uh, amazing philosopher of his day, he said, look, if you don't have power, if you don't have the will to power, if you don't have the ability to overcome your oppressors, you might as well die. You might as well die. That was Nietzsche's perspective. If you're not powerful, if you're not able to remedy your situation, you're better off dead. 
No different in Solomon's words. Ah, but you see, Solomon isn't speaking the words of God. Solomon right now is telling us the words, the wisdom of this world. He's saying, if this world is all there is, then verses 2 and 3 is the only alternative. If this world is all there is, then the best thing to do is to die or to never have existed. Many, in many instances, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon speaks from a this-worldly perspective, one that has no view of God, no hope beyond the grave. And if it were the case that, so, that, that God did not exist, or that nothing lie beyond the grave, then Solomon's words would be correct. If we were to strictly look at this life from a humanistic, naturalistic point of view, then Solomon's words would be correct. But is this really to be our reaction to injustice? Is, are those words really to be our reaction to oppression? The answer is no. No. Are we to respond to injustice by, by giving up hope or wallowing in despair or wishing death upon us? No. And even Solomon's going to say no. Let's take a look now at a better response to injustice. What is a better response to injustice according to the words of Solomon? We're going to say four more things that is Solomon's better response. When Solomon takes off the blinders and begins to look up and begins to consider, well, wait a minute, if we are to look at the philosophy of this life with God in perspective, with a hope beyond the grave, what are some answers we can give in response to injustice? First, take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. Great passage. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. In the context of, of, of this verse, by the way, it's, it's the idea that the, that, the, that the ruler or the boss is oppressing the, the worker. Okay? So we have a statement here by Solomon. If the spirit of the ruler is rising up against you, don't leave your post. For conciliation pacifies great offenses. The word conciliation, marpe in Hebrew, means composure. It means a soothing tongue. It means to keep your composure in an emotionally charged situation. Maintain perspective. Rise above the heat of the moment and let your ruler's anger, let your boss's anger be met with your words of peace and your conduct of faithfulness. The first statement in a better response to injustice is this. Confront injustice with faithfulness and peace. Confront injustice with faithfulness and peace. Solomon's advice is very clear in chapter 10, verse 4. And it's fundamental to all of us, particularly in the workplace. The boss is going to accuse you of wrongdoing from time to time. From time to time, he's going to accuse you of laziness. He's going to accuse you perhaps of incompetence. And when this happens, when his anger rises up unjustly against you at times... Remember that injustice is a part of this life. Remember that there will be times when you won't get credit or credit is due. But respond with words of peace. Respond in an attitude of faithfulness. Secondly, a second better approach, a better approach to confronting injustice is this. This. 
bear in mind that the earthly gain of oppressors is temporary and will ultimately be bestowed upon the faithful. We've read this text before, and it's a, it's a beautiful one. Again, bear in mind that the earthly gain of oppressors is temporary and will ultimately be bestowed upon the faithful. Now take a look at this great text. Ecclesiastes 2, 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting. Why? That the sinner may give to him who is good before God. This, Solomon says, is vanity and grasping for the wind. The idea here is that, hey, the sinner goes through life gathering and collecting, committing wickedness and evil, at times injustice and oppression. They're getting what's due them. And we look upon them and we see earthly gain. We think, why are they being blessed? Why are they getting ahead in life and I am not? Solomon says in 2.26, he says, that same sinner who is gathering and collecting, who is seemingly reaping the benefit of wrongdoing, even of wickedness, all the fruit of his labor is ultimately going to the faithful. It's going to the faithful. All the fruit of his labor in this life is going to the one who has believed in Christ, who has followed Christ, who has committed himself in the midst of many injustices to the person of Jesus Christ to act and to be like him. All their gain in this life is going to be afforded to the faithful. Solomon says the world will be brought to rights. And while we may envy at times, while we may wonder at times, why are they gaining and we losing? Why are they ahead and we behind? Ecclesiastes 2.26 They're collecting for you. They're gathering for you. And you will be given an eternal reward that far outweighs any earthly gain. Which, friends, should ultimately remind us that we need to be thinking about the judgment of God. We need to be thinking about the judgment of God. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, Solomon says this. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, I saw wickedness. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. But I said in my heart, God shall judge. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. And again, in another passage in Ecclesiastes, this time Ecclesiastes 8, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will He prolong His days, which are as a shadow, because He does not fear before God. What does this lead us to? It leads us to a third statement about responding to injustice. And that is, friends, let your hope for justice be centered, be fixed on the final judgment of God. Let your hope for injustice be centered on the final judgment of God. If your hope for justice is centered in this life, you will be disappointed. We may try to remedy injustices, and we do. We go to Haiti because it's an oppressed nation. We go to Haiti because there are children there who have been oppressed through no fault of their own, through the, through the fault of high official and high official who protects themselves and has ruined the country. And so we go there to fight injustice and we go there to fight oppression and we go there to bring the peace of Christ to a nation that is embattled 
and wickedness and sin. But friends, make no mistake, we will not remedy the situation in Haiti. Not in this life. We can't remedy it. Our hope for justice has to be ultimately centered in the final judgment of God. We work for justice. We work against oppression. But our hope, our hope when the world is going to come to rights, it must be centered on the final judgment of God. Fourth and finally, I want, to, I want to highlight one final statement by Solomon. And this is a very peculiar one. You might think it odd, but I think it, it, will, it will come around here as we conclude. I want to look at Ecclesiastes 7.7. 7. It's a very peculiar passage. Solomon says this. He says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. What does Solomon mean by that? Solomon's thoughts are these. Solomon is suggesting. He's saying, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. That is to say, one who is a victim of oppression, one who is a victim of injustice, can easily lose sight of truth and of reason. One who is a victim of oppression, a victim of injustice, can easily have their reason destroyed, have truthfulness destroyed in their mind, have it mixed up because of the injustice, because of the oppression that they're undergoing. And a bribe, Solomon says, debases the heart. What does that mean? I, I would argue this. Those same victims of oppression, those same victims of injustice who have had their reason skewed because of the injustice, who have had their, their idea of truth twisted a little bit, they themselves, they themselves, the victims themselves, can quickly find themselves acting unjustly in an attempt to remedy their situation. Let me say that again. The same victims of oppression and injustice who because of their oppression have had their reason skewed, who have responded in anger, responded in pain, in loneliness, in frustration, in bitterness, they themselves can then go on to take a bribe to do something unjust to remedy their situation, to get them out of it, at whatever cost. I think of the movie Defiance. There's a picture of it behind me. I don't know how many of you have seen it. Um, it's, a, it's a violent movie. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a, it, but, but it's a powerful, powerful story. How many of you have seen this movie? Wow. I, I was surprised. I didn't think it was that popular. This movie Defiance is, is about the Holocaust. It's about the Holocaust. It's about a Jewish family. On the left, you see Daniel Craig, the actor. On the right, Lee Schreiber. And these two men are brothers. They're brothers. They're Jewish brothers. They're from Russia. And at the onset of World War II, 
Hitler and the Nazis have come into Russia and have killed their family. Hitler and the Nazis, in cooperation, by the way, with some of the Russian officials, have killed their father and their mother, have pillaged the family farm, have utterly ruined these two men's lives. Through no fault of their own, they were victims of injustice. They were victims of oppression. Their mother, their father, their family farm, all that they had, gone. At the onset of World War II. These two brothers ultimately take two different paths in response to injustice. The man on the right, he gets angry. He responds in vehement anger because of the injustice due him. The injustice that has come upon him, I should say. And he responds by going to fight against and to kill any Nazi, any Russian oppressor, he, he, he rises up and he takes a gun and he goes out and he joins militias to fight against Hitler, to fight against the Nazis. Not only that, he ends up, because his farm was stolen from, he ends up stealing from other Russian citizens who were neutral in the, in, 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 with respect to what was going on. They, they were just they were peasant farmers. And he ended up, because his family farm had things taken from him, he went around stealing food, stealing goods, stealing supplies, because he felt that because he had experienced injustice, he could then take from all the rest. The brother on the left, ultimately, there were moments when he didn't, but... He ultimately refused to do that. He refused to steal. He refused to take vengeance. He took up arms to protect himself, to protect those that were with him as they, as they wandered through the wilderness in Russia, protecting this, this Jewish segment of people that were running from the Nazis. He protected, but he didn't lash out in vengeance. He didn't steal, he didn't pillage. He responded to oppression with truth and reason. I think of other examples, friends. I think of, uh, I think of terrorists. A terrorist claims, often claims, that they are fighting against, that they are, that they are sending bombs or sending a suicide bomber or doing a travesty like 9-11 in the name of of getting back at a Western government, or in the name of getting back at the Western oppressors, and yet they're killing innocent people, people that had nothing to do with the situation to begin with. I think of changes in third world government. Think about this. Anytime a, a new political candidate rises up to office, how does he do so? He rises up by decrying the injustice and the oppression of his predecessor. He rises up to political office and says, oh, we will not be like them. We won't treat the citizens in that way. And what do they do when they get into office? They find ways to oppress. They find ways to commit injustice. I think of King David. How about a biblical example? A man who was chased by Saul. A time and time again, David was running for his life. A terrible atrocity, terrible oppression and injustice. Saul tried to kill him multiple times and David narrowly escaped. And yet, what does David do when he becomes king? 
he sees a lady that he likes. And so he takes the woman's husband and he sends him to the front lines of a battlefield. He sends him to certain death so that David can then take the woman for his own. The victim becomes the oppressor. The victim becomes the oppressor. What of the disciples? Relatively poor, uneducated, lowly Galileans. They were oppressed, no doubt. They had many injustices committed against them by the Romans and by others. And what do we see in Luke 9 when, uh, when James and John come into a Samaritan village? They don't respond very positively to them. And so James and John turn to Jesus and say, let's call down fire on them. The Romans afflicted us. We were small peasant farmers, but now we've got power. And let's call fire down from heaven and wipe out this village who hasn't responded to us hasn't responded to our honor. Why do I bring up all these examples? I I bring them up to say this very clearly. Oh, how easy it is to go from being the oppressed to becoming the oppressor. Go back, if you would, to that verse, Joyce. Ecclesiastes 7.7 says this, Surely oppression destroys. It can destroy truth and reason in you. When you are a victim of oppression... Your senses get skewed, no doubt. But be careful. Because at that moment, you are liable to take a bribe. You are liable to do something that would totally debase your heart, debase your integrity, to get out of oppression at all costs. You are tempted to do that. The victim is tempted to then become the oppressor. And that becomes our final point today. It is this. Do not react to personal injustices in the heat of emotion. Pain, frustration, bitterness, anger. A victim's rash reaction may ultimately lead him to mimic his oppressor's behavior. A victim of injustice can just as easily become a person who will do anything to right the wrongs that have been done, that have been done to them. And so in, in, uh, in conclusion here, number one, a better response, Solomon says, this is a better way to respond to injustice. First, Confront it with faithfulness and peace. Second, bear in mind that, hey, the earthly gain that they may have, the oppressors may have, that's temporary. It's ultimately going to the faithful. Third, let your hope for justice be centered on the final judgment of God. And fourth, hey, don't go from victim to oppressor. It can happen. Do not react to personal injustices in the heat of emotion. A victim's rash reaction may ultimately lead him to mimic his oppressor's behavior. And what of Christ? Isaiah 53, 7. The prophet prophesied about Jesus. He said, He was oppressed. He was oppressed. And He was afflicted. And yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He reacted in faithfulness and peace. And yet it's not left there. We often leave Isaiah 53 there. Look at the reward. Look at the reward. The final justice now that is coming through Christ. Notice at the end of Isaiah 53, in verse 11 and 12, it says this. He, Christ, as a result of that, as a result of going through that oppression, He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. 
That sounds like Solomon talking right there. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And Christ shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Friends, you want to talk about final justice? You want to talk about the world being brought to rights? This is the day it's going to happen. At the final judgment of God, Christ, His labor of love toward us, going to the cross at Calvary, that labor of love will one day be fully satisfied when you and I, by faith in Christ, come before His throne and receive rewards and honor in proportion to our faithfulness, in proportion to the peace that we've put on this earth. And He will take from the wicked, He will take that oppression, that injustice, and the earthly gain that they had, and He will bestow it upon you who have been faithful. Divide the spoil to the strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this world is filled with injustice and we know it. It is a reality, Father, And we recognize that. And yet, Lord, our hearts just cry out against it. We don't like it. It's painful. It's frustrating. It makes us angry at times. Lord, help us to cope in a better way. Help us not to react in in despair. Help us not to react wishing death upon ourselves or wishing vengeance. Help us to react in faithfulness and peace. Help us to react looking at the judgment that You will one day bring. Father, let us not go from being victim to oppressor. May we keep our wits. May Your Spirit guide our reason, the truthfulness that You've put into our hearts. Father, our hope for justice ultimately lies in Your final judgment. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.